Open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter number 20. Revelation chapter number 20. You'll remember at the very beginning we talked about this book being divided up into three sections. The first five chapters had to do with time before the tribulation. Beginning in chapter 6 through chapter 19, it deals with the period of the tribulation. And now we come to that third section in chapter number 20 that deals with what happens after the tribulation period. So we have ended our accounts of the study of the tribulation, and now our attention is focused on those events that will occur after that terrible period of time upon the earth, mainly the millennial reign, the 1,000-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And before we finish this chapter, uh, he deals with the great white throne judgment of God. There are five sections in this chapter, the way I have it divided up anyway. Some might do it different, but I've divided it up into five sections, and I'll try to be as clear as I possibly can when we move from one section to another. But it begins in verse number 1 down through verse 3 with the removal of Satan. I kind of like the sound of that, don't you? The removal of Satan. And so let's listen to what he says. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is called, uh, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. Now, here we see Satan being bound, being removed from society. I'll never forget many years ago hearing it for the first time, a particular religious group that talked about the fact that Satan is already bound. And I love what the old country preacher said, well, if he is, he sure do got a mighty long chain because <laughs> because that rascal is everywhere you turn, everywhere you look. You see evidence of Satan's presence upon the earth. And we know that he has deceived the nations He's darkened the minds of people to the truth. He's destroyed multitudes. But finally, in that day, his work of devastation is going to come to an end. So we've got that to look forward to. He's going to be removed. What a wonderful thing that's going to be to know that there will be no satanic influence during that time Upon the earth. Now that brings us to the second section and things are moving along here in chronological order because when that happens, we notice that there is the resurrection and the reign of the saints. 
verse 4, 5, and 6. He says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection on such the second death, have no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, before we look at the resurrection and the reign of Christ, we need to stop for just a moment and try to clarify something. It might be that you've heard us refer to this church as a premillennial Baptist church. And, uh, you know, a lot of times we put a lot of stuff out on the, out on the church sign, you know, we are independent, unaffiliated, premillennial, you know, and on and on and on, and somebody driving by, that means nothing to them. They have absolutely no idea of what we're talking about. But there are sometimes that there are certain key words that are important, and if you don't know what it means, then you need to find out. So when we talk about the millennial reign of Christ and us being pre-millennial, we need to understand that there are different views regarding the millennium. First of all, there is what some would call the post-millennialists. Now, these are those that believe that the millennium is going to be brought in by the spreading of the gospel. And uh, they believe that the world's getting better and better. They claim that Christianity is going to finally, eventually triumph over the earth and that through our efforts that we will usher in the millennial reign of Christ. This was, this was believed by a great many of the founders of the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and for years and years, a lot of people believed this. But you know, after World War I and World War II and Korea and so forth, all of a sudden a lot of them got to change in their mind. Whenever they began to see the, you know, the morals just keep going down, 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 they begin to rethink their position. And it's a good thing because they're dead wrong. The Lord comes for His people before the millennial reign ever begins. Then there's another group. They're called amillennial. The word am meaning no. They, they don't believe there is such a thing as a millennium. They claim that the book of Revelation is all symbolic and that all of the prophecies have already been fulfilled. And due to that, they say there's not a literal millennial reign upon the earth. Well, surely I wouldn't even need to make any argument against that. That is so just so out of line with the Scripture that anybody ought to figure that out. But a lot of folks haven't, by the way. And then there's the right position, our position. You know, I've heard people say, you always think you're right? 
My answer is, well, if I didn't, I'd change what I believe. I, why would you say, no, I don't think I'm right? Of course I think I'm right. But, but look, whenever I say I think I'm right, it's not because I think I'm so smart because I'm not. I think I'm right because I've gotten my information out of the Bible. That makes anybody right. And so you can be right, you know, the same as I can. And the fact of the matter is, we see that the Bible teaches the premillennial view. And, and by the way, that is the view that has been held by Baptists down through the ages, and I might say almost exclusively by Baptists until recent years. And then all of a sudden you have the, the Pentecostals and the Assembly of God and the, and, you know, the, 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 uh, other people out on the fringe of the uh, of the Baptists, those involved in the convention, they begin to change, and uh, now you've got all of the non-denominational churches and so forth, and they begin to change. I mean, you know, what, whatever that is, uh, Methodists even, a lot of them, they begin to change. But for years and years, it was the Baptists alone that staunchly helped this view of the premillennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a nutshell, this is what we believe. We believe in the rapture. And that is that Christ is going to come in the clouds of the air. The dead in Christ are going to rise. We're going to go up. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. When that happens, and I know this is nothing new to you, that those of you that have been here, but it might be somebody that hasn't put it all together. So let's go through it. There is the rapture. That's when the Lord comes. He doesn't come to earth at that time. He doesn't set up His kingdom at that time. He comes in the clouds of the air. We're called up to be with Him. The dead in Christ, they're going to be raised that day and taken right along with all of the, all of the Christians to go to be with the Lord. That begins the seven-year tribulation period upon the earth. You have the seven-year tribulation. The first part of it is fairly peaceable, if you can call it that. But the last half of it is identified as the great tribulation because at the midway point, after three and a half years, the Antichrist breaks the covenant that he has made and all hell breaks loose here upon the earth. And so you have the rapture, then you have the tribulation, and then you have Christ coming back At the end of the tribulation, we're going to look at that in a minute, he comes back at the end of the tribulation period, this time to set up his kingdom. We read about that last week, right? All of the nations gathered together there in the valley of Armageddon, and you have the the war of Armageddon, the battle taking place. Christ prevails, and then he sets up his kingdom for a thousand years here upon this earth. Maybe you're wondering, well, what happens then? Well, it just gets better. Because after the thousand years of him ruling and reigning here upon the earth, after that he creates a new heaven and a new earth. So you've got it good for all of eternity. God has covered all of your bases. You don't have anything to worry about, nothing to fret about. But that, that's where we are. This is what we're talking about when we speak about the millennium. Now, there, there are several reasons why to, we hold to this view. For one thing, we're not like the amillennialist that says that it's all symbolic and all of the prophecies have been fulfilled. We're not like that. We believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible, except where the context demands that we take it in, you know, in a symbolic fashion or a figurative speech. 
And surely I don't need to explain that. When Jesus said, I am the door, he didn't mean he was a literal door, and we all understand that. So the context explains itself. But other than that, we take the Bible to be literal. Now, doing that, and I want to hurry through this, and I'm not going to get into detail with this, but I just want to give you this information And it'll help you to understand what we're basing our beliefs upon. Down through the centuries, God had made several covenants. He made a covenant back many years ago in Genesis chapter number 12 with Abraham. And we could read all of the verses. We won't take time to do that. But it dealt basically with the seed of Abraham and the and the land. And God promised that out of the loins of Abraham, he was going to bring forth a great and a mighty nation. And remember, he promised them the land. And so God made that covenant. And then God made a covenant after that with David. The covenant with David had to do with the king and his reign. And it's very easy to see that David is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of the many things said of David that could not apply to any earthly man such as David and must be applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see in God's covenant with David, it pertained to a king and a kingdom and his reign upon this earth forever and ever. Well, David died. He's gone. So when is this going to be fulfilled? There has to be a millennium just as God had promised. And then, of course, there was the Palestinian covenant that God entered into in the book of Deuteronomy. That had to do with Israel's possession of the promised land. Here we've still to this day got all of the fussing and the fighting and the bickering going on about the land over there. One day God's going to settle all of that. Amen? And then, then the next covenant, the, uh, the one that is the icing on the cake, is the new covenant. And by the way, in case you young people don't know, that's why we have the Old Testament, that's the Old Covenant, and we have the New Testament, that's the New Covenant. The New Covenant, of course, is based upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is important. Why? It is important because it guarantees the spiritual promises that God had made to Israel. And we certainly know that they have not been converted, as the Bible says, right? They haven't all turned to Christ yet. But because of the new covenant that God has, uh, has established, we can rest assured that we're going to see the day when, as the Bible says, all of Israel is going to turn to the Lord. So now, let's look at these two things, the resurrection, verse 4, 5, and 6, and then also the rain. The resurrection first. And in order to, in, in order for, to keep the various resurrections in order, let's just do a checklist and consider the resurrections in the order that they're listed in the Bible. So naturally, where do we start? Well, we would start in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 with the resurrection of who? Jesus, right? And the Bible says He is the first fruits. I mean, that's where it starts. So that is the first resurrection. 
Now, the next resurrection is found in the Bible is in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. I referred to it a while ago, and that's whenever the rapture takes place, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And so, that is another resurrection. You have the resurrection of Jesus, but then you have the resurrection of the just. Number three, the Bible speaks about the resurrection of the Jewish believers, and this I'm talking about the Jewish believers during the tribulation period and their converts. Remember, we've already studied that. We, we, we looked at it, for example, there in Revelation chapter number 7, when as a result of their effort, there's going to be a great number of people from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue that's going to be saved during that horrible period upon the earth. How thrilling it is to know that when the world is at its worst, that even great things can and will happen. But as we, as we see here in our text, there is going to be a resurrection. And notice again what he says in verse number 4. I saw the thrones and they that sat upon them, the judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast. Now, so now you know we're talking about people that were alive during the tribulation. Notice, and they had not uh, uh, worshipped his image or received the mark upon their forehead or in their hands. Notice, and they lived and reigned. Lived and reigned. Notice. Those words, they live, that's very important here in verse 4. They live because in the Greek that indicates a resurrection. In the English we don't see that so much, but if we could read Greek and understand Greek, it would become obvious that particular word that's used there means they were resurrected. And I say that because it, it simply literally means a coming to life. And in the context, it has to refer to a coming to life, because notice in verse 5, the rest of the dead lived not until the thousand years were finished. They lived not until the thousand years were finished. That's the same Greek word that's used there, speaking about they were not resurrected until the thousand years were over. By the way, This just happens to be the very same word that's used of Christ in Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 18 where it speaks about His resurrection. So I'm not trying to convince you that the Bible means something other than what it does. I'm trying to show you it means exactly what it says. There is a coming to life, and just as it tells us in the very first chapter, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, that He lived even so in regards to His resurrection, here we see there's going to be a resurrection of the Jewish believers and their converts. And this takes place, of course, at the end of the tribulation period, that is, when Jesus comes back for His people. Are you with me? You still with me? At the end of the seven years, Jesus comes back with His saints that He come to get seven years earlier. But at the end of the, of the period, of the seven-year period, He's coming back to this earth with them. And those that during the tribulation that trusted Jesus Christ and they were martyred, put to death, 
as a result of the fact that they would not bow down and worship the Antichrist, and so they are resurrected. Now, notice again the, the phrase here in, in verse number 5 and 6. The first, he says, this is the first resurrection. Now, I don't want you to be confused about that because that's not the first resurrection. We say, that's what it says. Well, yeah, that's what it says in context. It's not the first resurrection. Why? Because the first resurrection was who? Jesus. And there are other resurrections. There was Jesus, the resurrection of the just, the resurrection of the Jewish believers and their converts. This is the first resurrection of the two that's being considered here. Remember, he said they're going to be, they lived, they were resurrected. That's the first resurrection, but there's another one coming that takes place at the end of the tribulation. So then we have the resurrection of the judged. And we're going to deal with that here in just a little while. The resurrection of the judge that takes place when the thousand years has expired upon the earth. Now, that's the resurrection. Now consider the rain. Look at verse 4. They lived. That's what we've been talking about. They lived. They were resurrected. But notice, and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. Verse 6. And they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. Boy, when I get to this point and I begin to think about all that is involved in reigning with Christ, it just staggers the imagination because I know going into this that we don't have time to even touch the hem of the garment concerning all of the things that could be said. Uh, I've taught messages just on the millennium itself, and, and we could literally spend hours talking about everything that's going to happen. But let me just sum it up. Let me give you about 12 things that will characterize that thousand years. Twelve things that's going to happen. First of all, there's going to be peace. Going to be finally, at long last, a time of peace upon the earth. And there are many scriptures that speak about the peace during the millennial reign of Christ. Then it speaks about joy. Let me hurry through this now. Peace, joy, there's going to be holiness, there's going to be comfort, there's going to be justice, and I say that because in that day the government's going to be a theocracy. There's not going to be no, no voting and let the majority rule in that day like in a democracy. It'll be a theocracy where Christ alone rules and there will be freedom from oppression. There will be protection provided and so forth. And then not only justice, but there will be instruction in that day. Uh, the Lord Himself is going to lead us and guide us and instruct us. There will be great knowledge in that day. The curse is going to be removed in that day. In other words, the nature of the animals 
will be changed. There will be no more venom in the beast in that day. No more, no more venom in the, in the serpent. No more fury in the beast. And, and on and on. You think about all of the bad things that happened as a result of Adam's sin, and all that's going to be reversed in that day. There will be no more sickness. The deformed will be healed. Longevity is going to be restored. There will even be an increase in light in that day. But going on, number nine, there will be economic prosperity in that day. Number ten, believe it or not, there will be reproduction in that day. Now, that's going to come into play here in just a little while. And I'll show you why that's important. And then there will be a unified language in that day and unified worship. All right, everything's going great, right? We are ruling, we're reigning with Christ for a thousand years doesn't get any better than that. Satan has been removed. But look at verse 7. This might blow your mind. Here we see the release of Satan. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Well, if you read on and notice what happens it becomes obvious that even a thousand years' confinement did not rehabilitate the devil. And he's going to be loosed here because, and maybe you're wondering why, and I sure don't understand all of the reasoning of God and why, like people saying, well, why is it that God made us where we, we could sin? Why didn't God just make us where we couldn't sin? Then we wouldn't have that problem. And, you know, God doesn't give us the answer to all of those things. But, but you know, I can tell you one thing. Had He not done that, you wouldn't know what His love was all about. You wouldn't know anything about His grace. You would be like the angels. You wouldn't know anything about His saving grace and so forth. So God had a good reason in allowing us to sin. He's got a good reason for allowing Satan to be loosed for a while after the thousand-year reign. One of the things that come into play is the fact that those people that are born during the millennial reign, and remember, during that time, you're going to have saved people and unsaved people during that time, And those that are born during that time will still have the Adamic nature. That is, they're going to have the old sinful nature of Adam in them. Probably a lot more to this that we don't understand, but we do know that much. And here's what we know. We know when that period is over, as you're going to see, when the thousand years has ended, now think about this, When the thousand years has ended, there will be enough Christ-rejectors for Satan to marshal an army against Christ. That's mind-boggling. You know what we've been doing? All down through the centuries, we've been blaming everything and everybody but ourselves on our problems. We say, well, it's our environment. Yeah, I was born in a bad environment. That's why I'm like I am. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. These people will have been born during the time that Jesus Christ is ruling upon the earth. The government is perfect. Everything is perfect. 
Don't have to worry about getting snake bit or attacked by a pack of wild dogs or anything like that. I mean, it couldn't be any more perfect than that. And what do they do? They still reject the Son of God. That proves that man's, that man fails even when he's in the best of environment. There's absolutely nothing on this earth that can meet the spiritual need of man other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You can, like the old saying, buying books and buying books, but that's not going to do any good. You can put the best suit of clothes on the person that money can buy, but that won't do any good. Regardless of what you do, it'll never be good enough. Now, notice this rebellion. Let's talk about it. Look in verse number 8. Down through verse 10, this section deals with the rebellion of society. Verse 8, notice, "...and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth, and compassed the camp of the saints about." The beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that, that, that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever. So here we see that finally, finally at long last, that Satan is not just confined but will be destroyed. But it still amazes me that that as a result of the Lord Jesus Christ having a perfect reign upon the earth, that all of these people still reject Him, fight against Him, and this battle takes place at the very end whenever Satan comes out on the losing end of it. Now, now, we're, we're down to the point of the time that the, the resurrection and the rejection of the sinners in verse number 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Now notice the judge. The judge, and boy, you don't have to wonder who this is. Notice, because verse number 12 says, They shall stand before God. He's, he's the judge. God is the judge. Now, think about that. He has infinite knowledge, so you couldn't hide anything from Him, could you? Now, remember, this is the judgment of the unsaved, the Christ-rejectors. Those that sided with Satan against the Lord. And now they're standing before an infinite God who not only has infinite knowledge, but has unlimited power and unspotted justice. There will be no money under the table. There will be no high-powered lawyers getting you off the hook in that day. There will be no such thing as appealing to a higher court. Doesn't it just make you sick whenever there is an instance of someone being guilty as sin? They get the death penalty, and then it drags on for the next 20 or 30 years, going from one appeal to another to another, doing nothing but costing the taxpayers more dollars. 
And if you've got enough money, if you've got enough money, you can today get out of almost anything. The right connections, enough money, but boy, it won't be like that in that day because God is going to be the judge. And by the way, His judgment's going to be final. That'll be it. So He's the judge. Now notice the judged. The ones being judged, they're described here in verse number 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. Now, notice he describes them here as the dead. And he says, and the small and the great. Now, if you go back to chapter number, or ahead to chapter number 21, you'll see a more detailed list there. But for the sake of our study here, we'll just limit our view to those that are mentioned. They're, they're dead. These are Christ rejectors, small and great. So whether they're rich and poor, regardless of what they have in this world, in that day, these people that are so arrogant and so defiant against God are going to be judged by the all-knowing, all-powerful God. Now look at the judgment itself. Verse number 13. Before we go there, let's just consider the judgment, and I need to go back to verse 12 and start, because here's what happens. I want to try to put it in order. Evidence is presented. Notice the books, he says, are open in verse number 12. God has a record of absolutely everything. Somebody says, oh, well, you know, I didn't know. I didn't have a chance. And God's got a record. Oh, yeah, 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 you did. It was March the 23rd, 2014. You attended services that morning, and uh, David Stone stood up and preached about about the deadlines. And, and I warned you, I tugged at your heartstrings that day, and you ignored me, and you walked out, and you went on your way. You see, God has a record of all of this, everything that we do. The evidence is going to be presented. Oh, well, yeah, but I've never really committed any horrible, terrible sin. And I want you to understand, God has the evidence there of every sin you've ever committed Every thought, every evil, wicked, vile, filthy thought you've ever had in your mind, God knows all about that. The sinner is hiding nothing from God. Next, not only is the evidence presented, but the witnesses are called. Turn back in your Bibles for just a moment to Matthew chapter number 12. Matthew chapter number 12, and I want you to look at verse number 41 and 42. Matthew 12, verse 41, And the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Based on that and, and, and other scriptures, that in that day, when God is judging those that are unsaved, and the evidence is presented, and the witnesses are going to be called. 
let that sink in a little while that, that whenever the Lord calls maybe you to witness against one of your loved ones that had rejected Christ as their Savior. Think about that. The men of Nineveh, they repented. He says, you didn't. And then in that day, they're going to rise up in judgment against you. So the witnesses are going to be called. The evidence presented. And I need to stick this in there because there will be no defense. be no defense in that day. I mean, who's, who's going to stand up and say, I object, Your Honor? No defense. The verdict is going to be what? Guilty. And that's what it tells us, you know, repeatedly. They that believe not are what? They're condemned already. You see, the judgment, the, the, judge, the judgment bar of God, the great white throne judgment, is not to determine whether you're going to heaven or not. That's already decided. That's why Jesus said, you're condemned already. If you've not trusted Christ as your Savior, you're already condemned. And the verdict is going to be guilty. The sentence is going to be given. And lastly, the punishment. Notice he says in verse number 15, they're cast into the lake of fire. The punishment will be according to the privilege uh, here a while back, just a short time ago, I alluded to this, and so I'm not going to go back through it again, but there will be different degrees of punishment in hell, just as there are different kinds of rewards in heaven. Some will be beaten with many stripes, the Bible says, and some with few. Now, why would it be that way? Well, because there are some upon the earth that never have the opportunity to sit in church and to listen to the gospel week after week after week after week. They never had the opportunity that you've had. They'll be the ones that'll be punished to a lesser degree than those that that were able to attend church. They were raised in church. Mom and Dad brought them. They attended church all of their life. They had every opportunity. And yet they rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. And as a result of that, their punishment is going to be worse than the others. Now, I, you know, it's hard. It's hard. In fact, I can't even wrap my mind around this, that if you're burning in a lake of fire for all of eternity, how can it get any worse than that? I mean, at its best, that is horrible and terrible beyond anything that we can imagine. But I'll tell you what I do. I just take God's Word at His Word on that. Some beaten with many stripes, some with few. It's going to be worse for some. It's kind of like you turn the coin over and ask about heaven. You know, we're all going to go to heaven, but some will have a greater capacity to enjoy heaven than others because they will have won crowns and awards that others don't. Heaven's going to be wonderful for everybody, right? But it's going to be more wonderful for some people. Hell's going to be hell for everybody. But it'll be even more horrible for those that have had opportunity after opportunity and never trusted Christ as their Savior. I've often said, you know, it would be better, 
it'd be better for you to live way over in the dark places of the jungle somewhere and never hear the gospel and die and go to hell. You'd be better off to never hear the gospel than to hear it and reject it. Because once we've heard, we have no excuse whatsoever. So while tonight when we leave here, we as Christians leave with rejoicing in our heart that at long last we're going to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ, I hope we'll also leave with a solemn realization of the fact that we have loved ones, neighbors, friends, whoever they might be, that'll spend eternity in a lake of fire, just as the Bible describes here. Somebody says, oh, surely, surely you don't believe in a literal hell. I sure do. That's what the Bible teaches. You say, well, yeah, but that's just symbolic. If it's symbolic, then hell is worse than, than what it's pictured in the Bible. It'd be even worse. So it can't get any worse than this. And this is reality. Somebody says, tell it like it is. We want to hear the truth. I've told you the truth. They'll be cast into the lake of fire that burneth with fire and brimstone forever and ever and ever. The door of opportunity is open now. Someday, someday, if you're unsaved, it might be that you'd cross that deadline and never have another opportunity. Let's stand together. Father, tonight, how we thank You for Your glorious truth that You've revealed in Your Word. And Lord, that we don't have to go through life confused about what it's all about. We don't have to wonder what the future holds. We don't have to guess as to what we ought to be doing. You've given us all of that information, and You've given us, even in these difficult days that we live in, when it's so hard to do right and so hard to keep going, You've given us exceeding great and precious promises that we might be able to escape the corruption that is in this world through lust. And how we thank You for all of Your provisions. And now tonight, Lord, as we extend this invitation, we just pray that You'll accomplish Your will, whether it means the salvation of some lost soul or somebody getting their heart right or maybe someone just brokenhearted and praying for the lost. Whatever it is, accomplish Your will here tonight, for we ask it all in Jesus' dear name. Amen.